0: Welcome once again to the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Alex. I'm Matt.
1: I'm Crystal. I'm Vera. And I'm Sylvia, and I'm here with little Jack, my buddy,
2: a.k.a. my baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and we have a new fan letter this week that we'd like to read. This is from Literary Inc., Uh, Hello, all. I own a tattoo shop in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was looking for a podcast to help me get new ideas for a convention our shop is hosting when I found yours. I love getting tidbits of information and all your opinions on what you think that chapter meant. I'm a huge Potter fan, and I just wanted to let you know it's been great getting to know you all, and I will be with you on this journey until the very end. Uh, And P.S., she says, can a request be made to have weekly get-togethers? It's rough waiting for episodes we would love to meet more often Um, it's tough with all of our schedules we're just a group of friends that love harry potter and want to get together as much as we can um it may be a little easier over the summer so we'll see what we can do but thank you so much for your letter it's very encouraging to hear that people are on the journey with us
0: yes we love hearing from all of our uh, listeners and fans Uh, remember if you have a question or comment for the harry potter book club Uh, about a previous chapter or a chapter that you know an upcoming episode uh, is focusing on, you can always reach us with your comments at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com, and if you're lucky, we may just read your uh, letter on the air uh, just like we did uh, with this one. Well, this week we are turning to Chapter 8, The Potions Master. Uh, Rowling starts off this chapter with The whispers that happen in the halls of Hogwarts behind Harry's back. There, look, where? Next to the tall kid with the red hair. All of these whispers about Harry that he is most likely overhearing. So to begin our our foray into chapter 8, I want to hear from you all uh, what you think this is doing to Harry as an 11-year-old boy to be the object of such attention uh, early on in his Hogwarts career. What's it doing to him, but also what's it doing... To his relationships with others.
3: Well, I think, I mean, you can just think of him. I mean, he's a celebrity. I mean, even Snape calls them that and the, calls him that in this chapter. So, somebody who's been shunned and not talked about his whole life. I'm sure it's, it's new for him. Um, it probably makes him uncomfortable a little because it's not something he's ever had any kind of experience with. Um, I would think that any 11-year-old, if there are certain whispers being said about them, it immediately makes you almost insecure or, you know, want to prove yourself in some way or um, either live up to or prove someone wrong about whatever they're saying about you. And I think that we definitely see that starting to to develop in Harry in this chapter.
2: And. They also mentioned Harry wished they wouldn't because he was trying to concentrate on finding his way to classes. So I feel like at this point, it's more of a distraction for him than anything else. He's used to being ignored and kind of left to his own devices, and now all these people are paying attention to him, and he doesn't really know how to handle it.
4: When I think about this, I mean, I just think about in our reality, not in the Harry Potter universe, but, you know, how many children, you know, child stars, like movie stars, I mean, how they, mm-hmm. you always hear stories, like, they go off the deep end, they go crazy, you know, and and partying and drugs and just things like that. So, I mean, I, I see this, and it's it's kind of, like, the beginning of it, you know, for Harry, and it's uh, you want to think, like, how's he going to handle this? Is he going to... Uh, be more like a Draco Malfoy, where he starts bragging on himself and says like, "Hey, you know, like I am this great wizard. You're right. You're right to think this about me," uh, or is he going to be something different? And I mean, I think we 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 know what he does become, but um, it's just interesting at this point in, in the book.
0: Yeah. What he becomes, though, is quite complex. It almost mm-hmm. depends on what chapter of what book right. you happen to be in um, and to Rowling's credit I guess that's that's real to life um, that he would struggle to handle the fame and the celebrity uh, even in the midst of his attempts to handle it well uh, but I, I definitely think we'll see moving forward that the, the attention is nice especially from someone who is starved for attention early on And yet the attention brings with it responsibility, obligation, and pressure, like you were saying, to uh, prove that the attention is Mm well-deserved. We get a nice detail Mm -hmm. about one of the Hogwarts staircases having a vanishing step halfway up that you had to remember to jump. That becomes a a plot device Mm -hmm. later on uh, when Harry gets a foot stuck, and we we get a whole interesting uh, situation with that, but I suppose we'll talk about that when the time comes. Mm. In book (coughs) four. four.
5: (laughs) So that is the same step? Yeah. I did not catch that. So the trouble with jumping is not that you're going to fall through it, but that your foot is going to get stuck inside it.
4: Yeah.
5: Hmm. Wow.
1: I've never thought about it that deeply before. It's
5: good.
0: Oh, well, The Harry Potter book club is the place you come to think <laughs> far too deeply about details of Harry Potter.
5: Yeah, to me I thought how outrageously dangerous. You miss one step and you fall however many stories. Oh my goodness. But then the other theory that Vera put forth earlier when we were talking about this was that the step would just disappear entirely, in which case you would step through it and then hit the second level and trip over yourself, right? Just like if you had just totally missed the step. But now you're saying <laughs> your foot can get stuck in it.
2: Yeah, that's what, that's cool. what happens. As, it's almost less a vanishing step, more like, like a quicksand step yeah. is how it functions.
4: <laughs>
5: One of those things that, like, from cartoons you think are, like, a real hazard in life, and, and then not
4: really. you realize, like, that's not... Mm. And let's remind readers that this is an actual school, you know, for 11-year-olds to to come to. So it it is an interesting place. uh, Teaching you uh, at every moment. Uh,
2: I love how there's so much detail in this first book about how complicated it is to get around Hogwarts. And then we never hear, like, very little about it Mm. later. And I wonder if that's you know she's just working more on the plot or you know it's not as important to tell us some of those details or if it's just that it's not as important to harry anymore because he knows how to navigate Mm -hmm. it by second
4: year Mm -hmm. no well i think when what you get here and what you're starting to see with everything moving and uh like uh paintings talking suits of armored you Mm -hmm. know talking together and their secret passageways what we get is almost that uh, Hogwarts is alive yeah. in itself, um, and you start to get that sense I feel like here it 's moving it 's changing just like human beings do,
2: yeah, the sense of the castle as a character yeah in in the piece
5: well one one thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this was, and this is obviously much later on when there's the Battle of Hogwarts, I kept on thinking to myself, Hogwarts appears to be one of the most defensible places you could possibly conceive in the inside. I mean, if there are staircases that are moving and secret passageways everywhere, mm. this is like the optimal place for guerrilla warfare. You literally have to live here for like more than half a decade in order to understand how to get from mm. point A to point B. Any newcomer mm. to this school coming from the outside, the best thing to do would lead would be to lead them right into the middle. Mm. Where they would be totally trapped.
0: And that's interesting. In when is it? Book six, when we have the vanishing cabinet and people Mm -hmm. coming into Hogwarts, they they quite easily find their way where they're going. And yet I suppose that's because, you know, thinking out loud, Malfoy is of course helping. Um, And
1: they also went to Hogwarts.
5: A lot of them.
0: Potentially.
1: Yeah.
5: Yeah. That's a good point. Well, Only defensible to those who, <laughs> who didn't did go, go to, to hard the there, yeah. So well, the, the fact that the key bad guy did go to hard uh, is probably a big like super helpful. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but in the next war, yeah, 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 or with Grindelwald, you know what? Still, it still
3: still holds. Well, back to the idea of, like, the castle as a character or a cast- or the castle sort of being alive, I've heard theories, at least online, that I've always thought were kind of interesting where, like, the castle is using its magic to bring Harry to the right place at the right time mm-hmm. for a lot of things. Because if you think about it, and I mean, this is part of, you know, storytelling. Like, mm-hmm. he's got to learn these things so mm-hmm. that we can learn these things. But I just think it's really interesting that a lot of times Harry just happens to be in the right place to hear something like and you know we hear later in this book even you know he goes to ask for his book back and from the student lounge or the teacher lounge and finds you know that Snape has tried to interfere somehow with Fluffy and has gotten bitten so it's just he's always in the right place at the right time and I thought that was a really interesting Mm -hmm. theory yeah Mm -hmm. the mirror of said. yeah it's like Mm -hmm. how much of his
1: Dumbledore pulling the strings
3: or or it's an it interesting theory the, of the magic of the castle
0: yeah that's interesting because a lot of times authors can get sloppy and and are critiqued for having these sort of serendipitous mm-hmm. coincidences that end up driving the plot forward but when the context for action is a magical place that in some sense seems to have an agency of its own i guess you can sort of get away with that sort of mm-hmm. thing you know? yeah
4: we We meet uh, Argus filch um, very early in this chapter, and uh, the way they the way that Harry and Ron actually meet him you know is he thinks that they are actually breaking the rules, which is I think a little bit telling because uh, we know later on and throughout you know this book and uh, all the rest that Harry and Hermione and Ron and, and all of them are always breaking the rules. So, I mean, he sets up this, this thing with Filch and Mrs. Norris, you know, where he's already on a bad foot with a guy who really enforces the rules. And you can see that this is gonna be a long confrontation throughout this book and the rest.
0: Yeah, we're, we're introduced as well to tons of other professors. Mm-hmm. Professor Sprout, Benz, Flitwick, McGonagall, Quirrell, and, of course, uh, Professor Snape a little bit later on. I'm curious, before we we dig into uh, the real meat of this chapter, do you all have a favorite Hogwarts professor that over the years you've just found yourself gravitating toward, identifying with? Are we talking about this book right here or all books? Cross the Harry Potter canon. Oh, man, that's tough.
3: I love McGonagall. Um, me too. Mm-hmm. That's where I was going to. She's, oh, she's, just, she's timeless. And yeah. She's authoritarian, but fair. And especially I think in book seven, you mm-hmm. just like get this idea that she really cares for her students. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the scene in book seven when Harry like, you know, whips off the cloak because one of the Caro siblings is like spitting in her face. And like, he, he, it, you, you love her because mm-hmm. he tells you how to love her kind of. And I, her character just builds so much for you to appreciate and respect her. You you contrast her with Snape, who and the way that they treat their people.
1: So like when she's not afraid to discipline her own people. Right. Snape is very partial um, mm-hmm. towards Malfoy, and whereas McGonagall, you respect her more because she holds Harry accountable yeah. and um, you know holds him to holds her own house to a high standard. Yeah. So there's that fairness there.
2: Anybody else have a favorite that's not McConaughey? I, like I the mean, ladies have I, chosen I, I kind of like. like
4: Lupin, Professor Lupin. He's was, he's was all I mean, I know he's only there in one book, oh, okay. um but I felt like uh he treated his students very mm-hmm. well and actually uh as a defense against the dark arts teacher. Oh, definitely I, the most successful. Yeah, actually and taught least the students. Evil. Yes, yeah. actually <laughs> taught the students and uh was trying to prepare them how, how to actually defend themselves against creatures that were out there I mean before we found out that
5: Mad-Eye Moody wasn't actually (laughs) I I really liked Mad-Eye Moody as well like he might be a little bit I mean he was extreme but he got the point across and to me like that was one of those things that these creatures are can kill you Mm -hmm. they can kill you bad (laughs) and uh, he made that very present um, but the key in learning it was really like four things, right? Mm-hmm. Deconstructing the skill into its constituent parts, selecting which things are most important, sequencing the essential skills so that you learn the most important things first, and then finally motivation. And he gave very good motivation. You will die <laughs> if you do not do this. That's, yeah. that's great motivation.
3: I think um, thinking back to what you said about Lupin, he's probably my second favorite professor. And for him, I think it's just important to note, like, he was by far the most successful and best defense against the dark arts teacher, Mm -hmm. but he was deemed unqualified because of this prejudice against him, even though, like, you see him in teaching, like, he was, especially with Neville, I think, like, how much Mm -hmm. Neville grew under his care, like, you know, the sign of a good teacher, in my opinion, is, like, the growth of the student, so. And then this this thing about him, I mean, of course, it, it can be a dangerous thing, but You know, this thing about him, people wouldn't want their kids being taught by a werewolf. So Mm. how interesting that he's the best teacher, yet he's kicked out by prejudice. Mm -hmm.
0: I think it's a shame that we only get to meet and really know just a handful of the professors. Mm -hmm. But I I read this description of Professor Benz, who just falls asleep, dies... And then gets up to teach, leaving his body behind, uh, and and the description is that he drones on and on about the history of magic, about uh, Emmerich the evil and Yurik the oddball. Uh, A, I, I, I would just be fascinated to know who Professor Benz actually is. B, I object to this characterization of history of magic. Here, here. I think <laughs> if you're an 11-year-old Harry Potter who has just realized that the world is positively enchanted. History of magic is going to be fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like what there's, there is an entire, basically, a world history of magical peoples that you get to catch up on, learning about new discoveries, um, advances, uh, rebellions, uh, different conflicts. Uh, I think that would be absolutely um, entrancing. To to sit in.
2: Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where the teacher really, really makes a difference, because I want so badly to take History of Magic, but we don't hear anything about it, because Professor Benz is terrible.
4: But I'm I'm thinking, as an 11-year-old boy, I mean, like, I I know my love, because I do love history, and Crystal knows that, but my love of history didn't come until I was a little bit older. Like, I was a teenager, and I I had a good, you know, I had a good teacher Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in high school in U.S. history, and I mean, that's where my. So I'm just trying to think, as an 11 year old boy, would I be thinking, ah, history is boring. I I can't remember what I thought back when I was 11 about history. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. And I laughed uh, when it was a a ghost teaching. uh, um, Teaching history? Yeah, teaching history. But I also was reading something, and I thought this was kind of interesting on page 133. uh, Yeah, I think it's 133. Yes, where Harry talks a lot about. Uh, magic and how it's a lot of hard work and I know like when we think of magic we think of it's so easy like we flick a wand and boom like all of our dreams come true Mm -hmm. and uh, I mean JK Rowling is giving us a different idea of how you know magic is working it's something that you really like any other skill have to cultivate and work at and it's not just this swipe with a wand oh it's easy and you know everything happens the way you want it to um I thought that was really interesting he sees that McGonagall changes a desk into a pig and then changes it right back and then realizes oh we're not going to be doing anything close to that you know we've got to cultivate that skill to get get there it's not as easy as just saying a one-word spell and boom you know how to do it
3: well, if those wands in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter are any indication of how hard it is to get the correct, like, hand movement, mm. then let me tell you guys, it is difficult.
0: <laughs> One thing that I have heard others talk about is the the distance between how difficult magic seems early on when they're trying to learn it and how easy it seems later on when they're in duels or mm-hmm. fighting battles and especially the way the, the movies depict it, it's a flick of the wrist it, it's it's speechless yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and they're they're doing profoundly difficult spells. But actually, I think if we just look at the way we learn things, especially bodily things, that may be pretty accurate. Um, I think about sports, learning how to throw a curveball, or learning how to write cursive or something like that takes so much thought and concentration, but eventually it gets in your bones, mm-hmm. so that you don't think, you just do. And cursive becomes quicker than writing print. You can do it thoughtlessly. Throwing a curveball doesn't require thing. Oh, where's my hand go? How, how do I turn my elbow? What do I do with my front shoulder? It's it's just what it is. Yeah. It like, gets it gets in your body, and uh, in that way, I think. The talking less about um, how much concentration the magic requires and and the movies showing less effort being involved in the doing of complex magic may be actually quite realistic, uh, despite what we might first expect. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. That's a really
2: good point. Before we get too far away from it, there's um, this one little kind of interesting tidbit on 132 where... Uh, Harry and Ron get lost in Hogwarts and they end up in the out-of-bounds corridor and Filch catches them. Mm -hmm. And they're legitimately lost, but he won't believe them. He's sure they're trying to break into it on purpose. It says he's threatening to lock them in the dungeons when they are rescued by Professor Quirrell, who is passing. So he just happened to be on the third floor corridor at that point. Checking out the third floor Yeah, case in the joint. So that's one little...
4: One, one clue. One
2: little spot there. And in that moment, all we think is, oh, thank goodness, a nice professor came by yeah. and rescued them. But
0: it's, it's but circumstantial it's evidence at this point. It's a clue. But we also, on 134, begin to get a little bit more detail about Professor Quirrell, uh, specifically about his turban and the funny smell that hangs around uh, which the Weasley twins insist... Is garlic? It's garlic. I, I I have to admit, I'm I'm sitting there reading this like, okay, I think I know why the turban smells funny. But, but is it's... it really because Voldemort <laughs> smells like garlic? Like is, I don't, I don't it think it's because was... Voldemort smells. like Voldemort. Garlic. Voldemort's breath smells like garlic. No, no, no. <laughs> oh. I mean, no. Voldemort is having to <laughs> spend all this
5: time. <laughs> drinking the blood of unicorns, right? Probably also doesn't smell great. Also, we have seen from the movies, he has no nose. Therefore, I think (laughs) the garlic is actually used as a heavy, odorous scent to cover up the, like... Nasty Voldemort breath but ugh, it, From all this But it doesn't bludgery, bother
2: him Because he has no
5: Exactly <laughs> right He doesn't He doesn't get bothered By it at all Because he can't So it's it.
2: just His face And then a whole bunch Of garlic And then it's wrapped Around a turban Is that is that your hypothesis That's
5: exactly What I'm thinking okay. well, Like I, right over The eye sockets big too big cloves of garlic of Are just sitting back there All the time
3: I actually I mean Not quite so Like I don't picture it Quite the same way But like oh. I I thought that maybe It was a story almost that like Professor Quirrell or Voldemort himself like put about you know like there's this whole vampire to go along with it that he met in the forest of Albania or maybe that's not where but somewhere um, so maybe he I mean you know if you stick maybe Voldemort smells behind the turban I mean if you've ever had like a kid that has to wear a helmet and you take mm-hmm. that helmet off after they've been wearing it all day it smells awful it's mm-hmm. so, like there is something to be said or a cast if you've had cast nice. on mm-hmm. for too long it smells awful so there is something to be said about that. I mean, maybe they're using that to cover up the horrible, horrible smell coming from the turban. But,
4: but we get that a lot of students don't really believe, you know, what's going on. Like he, they think that Professor Quirrell's just making this up because he's always so shy. And when they try to get him to talk about things, so I mean, it's still he's really just a puzzle at this point. I think. I mean, we don't really know
0: Professor mm-hmm. Quirrell's backstory yet. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because my thought was always that Voldemort taking part of Quirrell's body, there was there was this kind of putrefaction that took place as mm. Quirrell's body changed that resulted in this stench. That somehow the presence of Voldemort himself emitted this odor. Yikes. <laughs> which... I don't know. Maybe I'm biased because it's my own idea, but it seems to me more reasonable than garlic cloves in the term. I kind of
4: like Alex's hypothesis in that... (laughs) It's more artful. In that, you're (laughs) right, he does have to drink unicorn blood. I mean... We don't know how often you know Professor Quirrell is washing Voldemort's face back there. You oh know, my gosh, I, this is you know, getting know, out of but, hand. but no, I'm just saying that he maybe he's using that garlic to cover up things that he think I mean thinks could lead to this the discovery of
0: Voldemort. Perhaps. And then
3: there's this vampire that he's supposedly afraid is going to come back for him, and garlic is supposed to ward off vampires. So I'm just, yeah, just just get of, back
0: backstory. One detail uh, that I came across about. Quirrell's turban that is um, unclear in the movie. The movie has Quirrell wearing the turban when Harry first meets him at the Leaky Cauldron. Mm -hmm. But the first time we hear about the turban in the book is in the Great Hall at the Welcome Feast Hmm. when the detail is given, and Quirrell was wearing an absurd looking turban, which suggests that Quirrell Perhaps wasn't wearing the turban and wasn't possessed by Voldemort in the Leaky Cauldron Mm. before the attack on Gringotts failed. I, I read some of this online and they were working out why, in fact, this was. But I went back and looked at the details and the first time we hear about the turban is at the Welcome Feast at Hogwarts. And it takes Harry by surprise to see Professor Quirrell looking somewhat silly.
3: Hmm. That kind of goes back to what I was saying too about them shaking hands when they first meet in the Leaky Cauldron because I was always upset by that. Mm-hmm. So that kind of makes sense because you know later on he can't touch Harry and we had all these theories about it. Absolutely, but that's that's a really oh. that's yeah. That really fits well. He was not yet yeah.
5: Um, right. I I was so I was doing some digging as we were discussing um, the nature of Voldemort's ability to sense smell. Um, And there are two different (laughs) phrases I could find um, quickly, both from the Goblet of Fire involving um, Voldemort's sense of smell. The first being uh, when he he says, um, He put back his terrible face and sniffed, his slit-like nostrils widening. I smell guilt, he said. There is a stench of guilt upon the air. Second, a little break, said Voldemort. The slit-like nostrils dilating with excitement. A little pause. That hurt, didn't it, Harry? You don't want me to hurt you again, do you? So it seems to me from these two things, right? We already know that Voldemort has this sort of snake-like appearance and this affiliation with snakes, this less-than-humanness about him. We also know that snakes, often, you know, they, their sense of smell is, well, it's different than ours. A lot of the time, really, their nostrils have these, these receptors for uh, body heat because what they're looking for is you know small prey often um so perhaps you know when he says i can smell fear upon the air it is quite literally like he can sense the 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 pulse increasing in the people around him the fear that that's present and he can um they're certainly responding like a normal person you know just like a normal person's nostrils might flare when they're angry or excited or something else like that um He's—he doesn't have no nose, but um, that might help explain the difference. It's not—it's not like a normal person dealing with sense in the same way.
2: Hmm. Yeah. All right.
5: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just a thought.
2: Uh-huh. Okay. So um, so we get to breakfast on the morning that they have double potions with the Slytherins and we get to see all the owls circling. And interestingly, she doesn't show us like the first time that the owls come to breakfast. She, she just mentions that, oh, Harry's used to it now, but the first time it was quite a shock with all these owls coming in and dropping packages. Um, Because this is the first time Harry actually gets something from Hedwig, which I thought it was really sweet how even when she didn't bring him stuff, she would still come in and like nibble his ear and have some toast and then go. It's just such a neat and weird relationship that the magical animals have with with their masters. And I'm always baffled by how owls know where to go. And know where to come back to you, even if you're not in the same place where you were before. It's just really cool. It's very magical. <laughs> yeah. That's all it is. I mean, you really can't explain it any other way.
1: Well, so speaking of that, uh, we were listening to this on the audiobook last night as we were falling asleep. And I went, plot hole, plot hole. And Trevor's like, what, what? And he had fallen asleep. And then you were like, well, what is it? And I said, don't worry about it. Anyway, the plot hole that I well, it's not a plot hole; it's a question. So how um, Hagrid sends Harry a message via Hedwig, and I just was again maybe not a plot hole, but like was curious about that. Why would he go get Harry's owl to send Harry a message? That just seems like a lot of trouble, as opposed to just any old owl. You know, that's that's my question.
2: Well, I mean, I guess but they're maybe they're all in the owlery,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? So like, why not get Harry's owl because she'll go right to him? Okay. That's a good thought. Plus, he did buy Hedwig for Harry, so I feel like there's this like
4: connection knows, connection
3: knows, between the three of them. Yeah, he, he knows, knows which
4: him. owl to look for. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. there's also like that Hedwig has, you know, in I can't remember which book it is, but Hedwig goes to get his birthday presents. Like she's instinct instinctually like, oh, it's his birthday. I want to make sure he gets something. So she shows wow. up where Hermione's yeah. like vacationing on Fran- in France, I think. So that's Prisoner of Azkaban, I think. So maybe she's like Harry hasn't had any mail. Let me go visit Hagrid, who <laughs> bought me for Harry. I'm, there's this. You're right though. Like she's she's so, she's so sweet so and instinctual, mm-hmm. and I think animals mm-hmm. are that way a lot, especially if you have them as pets. And I, I mean, I say that you know, having pets and as an animal lover, so mm-hmm. maybe bias. But I, I feel like I could see that with Hedwig. At least we know mm-hmm. that there's this magical quality to her personality or character. Mm-hmm. So maybe she went. to... Went to Hagrid and was like, "Invite Harry to tea on Friday afternoon." Yeah.
4: Well, Harry was having a good day. You know, he got a message from Hagrid, and then we go to his first potions lesson. Um, what do you guys think about that? Because obviously, this is called the Potion Master. Yeah. So this is a big part of the chapter.
2: I feel like it's handled really well in the movie. It's pretty much like a lot of it is verbatim yeah. <laughs> what happens mm-hmm. in the yeah. class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, Alan Rigman is is Professor Snape. Yeah, he was the perfect actor for this. Perfect. Um, but it's like it it just drips with this injustice. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just constant. Like he's going after Harry. There's really other no other way to put it. And in the in the movie, he's taking notes. And so yeah. Snape's like, "Oh, you're not paying attention," but here he's totally listening yeah. to everything. That's kind of
4: what I was thinking was in the movie. Yeah. he had justification a little bit. A little bit. Like, oh, Harry, bit. he's not paying attention to what I'm yeah. saying, but here he's just
2: listening like everyone else, he's like it's, Mr. Potter. Yeah, and, you're and he, a he says kid. he says
4: our new celebrity. Yeah. So he's already like, you know, poking at him and, and picking on him. He has done nothing.
0: <laughs> you know, it's interesting though. Before nearly before anything has happened that would make us believe that Snape is a terrible human being. We get physical descriptions that prime us to believe that he's somehow awful. Uh, Rowling says that, uh, Snape's eyes were black like Hagrid's, but they had none of Hagrid's warmth. They were cold and empty and made you think of dark tunnels. And of course, one of the huge questions throughout all seven books is who is Severus Snape, and Rowling here is setting us up with these physical descriptions to perceive Snape in a very particular way, um, so that we're we're constantly believing he he's got to be bad he's he's bad he must be bad and of course Harry Ron and Hermione believe that he's wicked mm-hmm. and such but. Um, Of course, there's this tension, this unresolved question. Why does he then do the things that he does throughout the books? Uh, Of course, leading up to the ultimate surprise uh, at the end. But it just struck me as I was reading through this like, oh, she wants me to believe that Snape, even at the level of his physical demeanor, like the way that his eyes sit in his head and stare out at the world, he's a heartless, cold man. And you know 3 books later when we're struggling to know who who sneep is we don't remember that description but it's somehow stuck with us the perception hangs with us that deep down uh, he can't be good.
3: That that makes me that made me think of something like there's this cliche out there that's like you know the eyes are the window to the soul mm-hmm. and like even that I think kind of gives you a little glimpse of Snape and that we never really know whether or not we can trust him. So it's like most people when he describes them when Rowling describes them it's like we get this idea of whether or not we can trust them. Like we immediately know whether we should or not, but with Snape we we are more we're leaning more towards distrusting him but there's I don't know, the idea of this, like, dark tunnel is, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't, you can't see anything, you're not sure, and that just lasts and lasts until the very end, Mm -hmm. and then that, Mm -hmm. the very last thing we see is, like, you know, something in his eyes, like, went away, and, like, how interesting that, well,
0: that's good. But if we remember who Snape has had to be for the past many, many years, someone who's practicing occlumency. Mm Mm-hmm. He's literally shielding people from knowing who he is because he's been hiding uh, for a a large part of his life. Uh, And it it makes you wonder going into this sort of description that we can't see in your eyes who you are. If that isn't, if not a a conscious decision, then somehow an unintended consequence of having to live in hiding in Mm -hmm. some way. Uh, practicing this sort of magical occlumency uh, at the level of the soul for so long.
3: Yeah. And how sweet that, like, the thing he loves most about Lily or the thing that we always see, like, associated with Snape and Lily are her eyes. And that makes me think back to when we first heard anything about, like, Harry having Lily's eyes. Matt, you said something about, like, maybe him having Lily's eyes was not so much, like, their physical description, but the way he, like, sees the world through her eyes. Like, how interesting that he immediately, like, blocks out Harry almost. It's all I almost see it as, like, a defense mechanism. Mm. Yeah. I think that's really, man, that's good. Yeah.
2: And it's so, like, it's so heartbreaking because he, he has this big, long monologue at the beginning of his class about potions. And he's so passionate mm-hmm. about his subject. But then you get to the end and he's like, I can teach you all these things if you aren't as big a bunch of dunderheads as I usually have to teach. And it's like right there, like he pulls you into his world and then he shuts you out Mm -hmm. because he can't handle people and he's been hurt so much and he just... Like, I can't can't make any relationships with these children. I'll favor the Slytherins, that's as best as I can do, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: But, of course, Hermione is on the edge of her seat, <laughs> looking desperate to start proving that she wasn't a dunderhead. <laughs> which is hilarious, but it's also heartbreaking mm, when you yeah. think about who Hermione is mm. as a first-year Hogwarts student, desperate to prove that she's not a dunderhead, which is just positively exhausting. I think we've all been there, yeah. like, and we may not have said it in that characteristically British way, but in situations, or maybe going through life, desperate to prove that we're not dunderheads, and you can never prove it to yourself and others enough. It's so it's it's a funny detail knowing yeah. who Hermione is. But like many of the details that Rowling gives us about characters, it's sad mm-hmm. when we reflect upon what it means about the kind of person that these characters are at this point. Yeah,
2: yeah, I. I love the progression of Hermione for these three questions. So first, like, he asks the question of Harry specifically. It's not a question for Hermione. (laughs) And her hand shoots into the air. And then the next one, she stretches her hand as far as she can without getting out of her seat. And then the last one, she fully stands up. (laughs) She's fully standing up in the dungeon with her hand raised. And, like, at this point, you know he's not going to call on you. He's... He's... You know, he's bullying Harry. He's not interested in the answer to the question. It's just, it's so funny. She's still, she's like, I know this. Why aren't you calling on me? That's such a Hermione Yeah, it's thing a funny scene,
4: but, I mean, at the same time, uh, you know, he's, of course, making fun of Harry here. And, I mean, I know we just had a, a nice little speech about uh, the, the good-heartedness of uh, Snape. But I still think, I mean, here, like... It, he's, it, a it, he's a jerk. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. He's a jerk. Like, he's... Uh, He he could just be bitter, you know, I'm sure he's bitter, um, and we we see that, but like, I don't want to let what happens in book Mm -hmm, seven mm -hmm. shade, you know, how we should feel about Snape right here, even though, I mean, to a certain degree it should, but, you know, he's still, he's still a jerk, you know, and he should not be doing this to his students, picking out a student who he knows has not grown up in the wizarding world, and is picking on him and we know, I mean, one of the, the main reasons he picks on him is because of Harry Potter's actual father. Um, and it, it, it p- quite possibly is, this is a little w- way to get revenge, you know, mm-hmm. for all the times that James picked on him, oh, yeah. p- picked on Snape as a child. I did wonder, though, because we
5: see later on the, the Bezor being used so effectively and quickly by Harry, and the only time, other time... We hear it discussed, if I remember correctly, is this time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it obviously left such an impression that it could be immediately drawn no, on. No, he nah. read
2: it. He read it in the book, although that was also Snape's book. Ah, he read it in the Half Blood Prince's he also potions read it book. Okay, that's why he remembered He's it. He learned class. potions from Snape in that book better than he did in like six years of his class.
1: Yeah. Well, I've, well we've, Trevor and I have heard at least one other mention of the bezoar. It's it, like sprinkled in, throughout the in, books. In book four, um, surprisingly.
0: Neville screws up a potion because he forgot to add the bezoar.
1: Mm-hmm. Which led me to ask, why doesn't everyone just carry a bezoar in their pocket everywhere they go just right? in case? Well, and I mean, it's anyway, like aspirin like for a heart attack yeah, like, and <laughs> a bezoar
0: for, you know, a malicious potion. Yeah, so I mean, it seems handy.
2: like they wouldn't be that expensive if everybody's but got one in their elementary Exactly. Like and
0: that's what we were thinking when Sylvia asked, why do you think people don't just carry these? My first thought was, well, are they incredibly expensive? I mean, they are from a goat's stomach. I mean, maybe they're a commodity, but then like literally that night, as we were listening to book four, it said, well, Neville forgot to add his beezord to his potions. Like, well, I guess they have just got them lying around the potions room for practice, uh, exercises. So they can't be too expensive.
1: But it is still cool that they're introducing something here that's going to be
3: so significant in mm-hmm. book six and yeah. saving Ron's life. And later, Hermione, Harry says, like, I don't, why are you on to me about this book? And she was like, you would have known this if you'd just listened to Snape in her first year. So she even references mm. this. And mm-hmm. Harry, he, he's not listening to this. Yeah.
4: Well, Harry's been being picked on right now. Right. So, I mean, he's probably thinking about other things. But before we uh, move past, I guess, what... Uh, very, you had mentioned about his little speech, uh, and he, he says, "I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, even stopper death." And that stopper death, I mean, kind of hit me because it's it's the beginning of a thread I think that's throughout all of these books, and especially you know right here where you know Voldemort is trying to cheat death. I mean, that's. that's what he and you know I guess as human beings we all try to cheat death we want to cheat death somehow we can't but um, this is this is a major theme I think that's just being teased out you know especially right here put a stopper in death Um, and it it struck me I guess from reading uh, you know all seven books I would not have picked it up um, had I not well maybe I would have picked it up I guess you know if I'd read all of this book then reread it you know again but having known what i know i mean that just stood out to me i don't know if it stood out to anyone else
3: well it just made me think of the elixir of life that you make with the sorcerer's stone mm-hmm. yeah. you know i wondered if that's what he's talking about making
0: yeah my i interpreted it to mean like putting a stopper in a potion of death mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. like literally boiling brewing Death, a yeah. of the and living then putting death, which is putting a stopper in it and carrying it around and being able to, to kill.
3: Mm.
4: That's not how I read it. Well,
0: yeah,
3: mm. me either. Because
4: is it in book I six challenge when they you make draught? <laughs> <laughs> what?
1: So? Oh, well, I think is it book six when they make draught of the living death? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. In, in Slughorn's class. Mm-hmm. So
2: that was another question. And then the other one that he asked with, about the monkshood and and Wolfsbane that comes into play when
0: Lupin's at the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to what. Matt was saying about we can't let Snape off the hook for being a jerk, and surely that is right. Uh, I'm I'm curious. Uh, I mean, Harry is introducing the question, and it hangs over this chapter. Why, why did Snape hate him so much? He asked that multiple times. What do you think is the real reason? Uh, Harry, you know, is racking his brain. We, of course, have the benefit of seven books of insight. But even as I found myself thinking through it, I couldn't come up with a simple answer to that. Yeah, I, I'm curious if, if you all had thoughts. What's going on in Snape that makes him act this way towards Harry?
1: I think sometimes you look at... Uh, two different people can see the same person. And just because of personality, one person can perceive everything as so, you know, oh, they're so full of themselves or they're so whatever. And the other person's like, well, I don't see it that way. So like, I I, I think there could just be a, a basic clash of personality and misinterpretation where for whatever reason, the first couple times that Snape observed him from afar, he saw something and just interpreted it in such a way. And then everything started to line up with that. Um, so I do, I think that happens to all of us in life where we misperceive each other or, or have a more negative sway of someone than we ought, um, for just a simple misunderstanding. Body language, communication style, whatever.
2: I think in the beginning, at least, it has very little to do with who Harry is as a person and more to do with his dad. So he was bullied by James. He hated James. James was a jerk in a lot of ways, even though we know, like, as an adult, he's a better man. And Snape loved Lily, and Lily chose someone who Snape hated, and then Harry is the evidence of that union. And he looks just like James. And so, you know, I think that little piece of Lily helps him remember to protect Harry and to try to keep that memory alive of Lily. But I think his gut reaction to... To Harry is just this hatred because he can't he can't divorce him from his father.
3: I think in in book seven in the chapter the princes tell which I reference all the time because it's my favorite chapter in all the books. But um, there's a, a meeting with Dumbledore where um, Snape is just venting about Harry basically, and Dumbledore says, "You see what you want to see." And I think that's really telling of, like, his preconceived notion about who Harry was going to be. He sees what he wants to see. He hated James, and, you know, that was only—he would have hated James regardless of whether or not he ended up with Lily. Because, like you said, Vera, I mean, he was—James was kind of a jerk the few times we saw them interacting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think especially the fact that he ended up with, you know, the person that Snape loved his whole life. That made it worse, and then you know he walks in, he's already thinking he's like he's going to be just like his dad, and then he looks just like his dad, and then he sees that he has Lily's eyes, which you're right, remind him of you know that he's supposed to be protecting Harry, but I think also it it hurts yeah. you know it's got to hurt to see like the guy you hates face with the woman you love's eyes <laughs> like that's got to be a really hurtful reminder, so you're right he's not justified in being a jerk, but If you put yourself in those shoes, that would be really hard. Especially knowing you have to protect him.
0: Matt also brought up the point, though, of jealousy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harry has been handed upon entrance to Hogwarts. um, Everything that somebody like Snape was constantly denied his entire life. Which, of course, uh, could make it difficult to stomach on top of all of this. But then I also wonder if there's not... At times, a measure of overcompensation that Snape has been commissioned and has accepted the mission of protecting Harry. But it's that no one can ever know. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes me think of like the kid on a playground who has a crush, but doesn't want the person to have a crush. So they act like they don't have a crush. And then they go overboard and make the person cry. And they're like, oh. You know, I didn't mean to do it. Like, clearly, you know, that analogy only goes so far. Um, But I wonder if at times, Snape doesn't inhabit this hatred as a way of throwing people off any scent Hmm. that he could possibly be involved in Harry's protection. It it gives him a measure of plausible deniability, which we experience as, as readers throughout the entire book, even when Snape is clearly acting in Harry's best interest we're asking well what's his ulterior motive Mm -hmm. because we've sort of taken the bait of this evidence of hatred um yeah
3: and that's really interesting too because in actuality like you know harry kind of had the same childhood that snape had i mean he was kind of shunned and you know snape's parents argued all the time we learned that later on um so really, I mean, rather than seeing you know everything that he wanted, he could have seen someone that he could maybe identify with even. Have we
4: said what we wanted to about Snape? I didn't want to cut anybody off from what I was going to say next. Okay, uh, th- this one's just um, th- when they were uh, mixing potions and. The acid is spilling all over the floor. Yes. Terrible. Okay, I'm thinking about when, you know, like I, I was in school in chemistry and we're wearing gloves and goggles and, you know, protective jackets and stuff like that. And these kids are mixing dangerous potions, you know, if you mix They've it wrong. The
2: soir, fine. They are they bought, 11. They have dragon hide gloves. Those they are definitely are on the list for potions. They're on okay. They're wearing dragon high glasses. I, I guess maybe. I don't think there's any eye protection. I don't remember reading that. But
4: But we still see that Neville is drenched in potion. <laughs> it's all over Then it has an, like he's moaning in pain from angry red boils he, that sprung up on his arms. And,
2: and legs. he ruined he ruined Seamus' cauldron. It's a twisted blob, it says. Like that know. is some intense and the only thing he didn't do. Is, let's see what name says. I suppose you added the porcupine quills before taking the cauldron off the fire. Uh-huh. Don't you think that's something that you should say over and over again to your first-year students to make sure it doesn't happen on their
0: first, on the first, on their day. first day of potions? And, and to be clear, the cauldron is strong enough to brew living death. Drawn of living death, yes. And Neville, on his first day, has managed to just... Demolish the cauldron with what he has. (laughs) He has manufactured. I mean, this is this is
2: amazing. (laughs) I'd say one evidence of Snape's possible mercy is that he didn't take points off (laughs) for Neville as he goes to the hospital wing. To me, this was. Oh,
5: sorry, go ahead. To me, this was more evidence of his particular hatred of Harry. That like Harry makes just well. Not only not an innocent mistake, really, but just like gets called out needlessly, and points are taken from Harry, mm-hmm. and then Neville. Whether or not he should have been given better instructions, whatever it might have been, he likely was given a set of instructions, made a mistake, did not follow those instructions, and created an enormous amount of physical damage right. in addition to his own grievous bodily harm. Um, <laughs> no points.
2: Yeah, no points yeah. for Neville. Although um, that is somehow Harry's fault though. Yes. Snape calls take, Harry out for that. It's like oh did you think it would be it would make you look good to not tell him and he and he would make a fool of himself. Really I feel like you're the teacher. Maybe you should have said something, Snape. No? Points off for me? Great. Thank you. So frustrating.
3: And here we see Harry like defending himself, which I love. He's got that little bit of like sass and spark that I love about Harry's mm-hmm. character. So, like, he's going to retaliate, and Ron's like, no, don't. I hear yeah. Snape can get really nasty, so make sure you don't respond to that. But uh, that's a really unjust thing that I don't know if, you know, maybe as an 11-year-old and, like, dealing with authority, but, yeah. wow, I would have been so upset. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I don't know, I just found that kind of funny thinking about acid spewing and, you know, I mean, it burning their shoes, and I'm just like, man this is intense for 11 year old children. It just
1: goes with, Hogwarts is a dangerous yeah, place, and is. Dumbledore like strategically makes it extra dangerous for Harry. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: So. <laughs> yeah, it made me think earlier when Alex was talking about the vanishing step, and how dangerous it would be if you could just fall through that, but I was thinking like, danger is never something that should make our imaginations stop thinking what Hogwarts is capable of. Because clearly, danger isn't a problem. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's dangerous around every corner.
2: Yeah, when he said that, I was almost like, oh, it's a school. They would never let... And I was like, of course they would. Yeah. Nothing would be done about that. It would be left that way.
0: They have a three-headed dog yeah. behind a padlock that a first year can get through. Right. So we'll, we'll get there later. Sports.
1: But. I have bludgers. That's yeah. just bludgers. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: The Forbidden Forest is a thing. Yeah. It exists. So.
2: <laughs> so then we get to visit Hagrid in his hut. This is the first time we see Hagrid's hut. And it sounds so sweet and homey.
5: I would
4: love more details on the recipe for the rock cakes.
2: Oh my gosh. Nobody wants to eat this.
4: I mean they're called rock cakes. Yeah. And they break your teeth, Pratt. The raisins yeah. so, break your teeth.
2: I know. All of Hagrid's what? cooking is that way. But I just... You know, there's only one room inside. Hams and pheasants are hanging from the ceiling. A Playing copper kettle giant
5: stereotypes. is boiling
2: on the open fire. And in the corner stood a massive bed with a patchwork quilt over it. It just sounds so sweet and homey. And a huge meat. dog,
3: which makes a it even better. big
2: old dog who's also like Hagrid. Yeah. Big and intimidating, but so sweet and gentle. Um, I just... I, I love this little taste of home that they get to have going to see Hagrid. He's just such a sweet, like breath of fresh air after a mm-hmm. terrible day with Snape. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was interesting. We get a, a a detail, a detail that's easy to pass over, uh, where Hagrid says about Filch that every time Hagrid goes up to the school, uh, Mrs. Norris, Filch's cat, follows him everywhere. Uh, he can't get rid of her, uh, wonders if Filch Puts her up to it, um, which m- makes me immediately think, is Filch remembering the events that we'll hear about in book two, oh, yeah. mm. uh, and Hagrid is still sort of carrying um, the, the label uh, and everything that comes along with, with his history, even as he lives as groundskeeper to this yeah. day. Mm-hmm. We don't
5: know much about Filch. And I, I always thought it was interesting that, um, you know, filch is another term for thief or to steal, to pilfer. Um, and yet he is the guy that's constantly trying to look out, he's see a, people. He's a
4: caretaker. Yeah,
5: he's a caretaker. He keeps on... Well, but a lot of his job seems to be running around catching kids doing what they're not supposed to be doing. Um, and I wonder if his suspiciousness of all these other people comes from some history we don't know about that isn't all good
2: no, i don't know I, for mm. me it's more an evidence of that skill that Rowling has to combine words in a way that makes like evokes something like for me filch is like filth and squelch mm. Mm. and that feels like filch mm-hmm. to me mm.
5: Mm. <laughs> uh, like those are sweat. those
2: are words that i feel like she used to like
5: somebody uh, blew up a bathroom and he tried to clean it up and then he's running somewhere else so he's
2: Squelching in his boots. Yeah. yeah. He, you know, he's just a, a grody old man.
0: Hmm. It, it's it's funny. This this conversation about naming made me look up Argus, which in Greek mythology is a monster with a hundred eyes.
1: Oh. Who
0: clearly, Filch's JK primary so characteristic good. is that he sees he's everything. Always watching. He's hard. He's knows, hard to buy. Well, he knows
4: all the secret passages of Hogwarts. I mean, better than anyone except, except possibly from from Fred and George. George. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean that really makes sense. He, well, that,
3: she's so good,
5: at yeah. she, and he <laughs> has yeah.
1: extra eyes. I mean, he already yeah, has more eyes than right. anyone else. Yeah,
2: because Missus Norris is running mm-hmm. around. Yeah, but that
4: stuff. Uh, that sentence that you brought up, where he was having Hagrid followed. I mean. Once I read that, I was thinking, man, we've really seen a lot of characters now solidifying into their roles, and as I kind of have put them into like pro Harry and anti Harry roles. <laughs> I mean, you start to see it's two camps. You know, yeah, you start to see these two camps forming um, in the book of who's for Harry and is going to help Harry along, and who's going to make things really difficult for Harry, make him yeah. have a bumpy ride.
0: There's a scene later on. I don't remember which book, where Rowling gives us just enough of Filch's backstory, mm-hmm. yeah, to intimate that he's a squib, yeah, mm-hmm. and that that's where this callousness comes from. Yeah, uh, that I think is one of the more poignant scenes in all seven books for what it reveals about Dude. his character. Yeah. Um, is it really? But it also... It, it helps us understand why Filch is the person he is.
1: Well, when you were talking about Filch, I was going to say, you know, is he trying to Filch magic? But, again, mm. I don't know. I like... Mm. I like Vera's theory as well. Um, <laughs> but, but is he trying to get a hand in that? At the very yeah. least, it makes you insecure, you know? hmm
0: <laughs> And I... I know this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but when he comes into the Great Hall in Book 7... <laughs> Students out of the beds, mm-hmm. and McGonagall just shuts him up. Yeah, they're so supposed
3: they're to be out of the <laughs> <laughs> beds. Oh, go classic. get Peeves!
2: The, the whole school
3: as out of the beds. I just thought you should know. And she tells him to go get Peeves for some help. And Peeves is like the person that's been like the bane of his existence for as long as he's been at Hogwarts. So funny. So good.
0: Well, the last thing we get. Uh, is a clipping from the Daily Prophet that's lying uh, on Hagrid's table under the tea cozy about uh, Gringotts, uh, the break-in, and the latest news uh, surrounding that. So the plot, the larger plot, is advancing. Uh, Harry is learning more details about what happened on July 31st uh, at Vault 713
4: Yeah, just an important plot point. Yeah,
2: we were talking earlier about how it's kind of strange that they would mention, but the vault had already been emptied earlier that same uh, day. Like that they would tell us that
5: deeply frustrates me. Yeah,
2: because it seems like the Gringotts goblins would want to keep it all hush hush. You know, they they didn't they didn't steal anything.
5: Additionally, maybe, maybe
2: just to say that they did not steal anything from that, the vault.
5: That is a deeply unprofessional way of going about doing a police investigation for a crime, <laughs> a theft. From a high security vault is not something that you just release details to the public about without having gone through a thorough investigation and have you know an official prosecutor and I mean like we we have this little view on this what seems to be would be an extraordinary crime right the safest one of the safest places in the world being uh, broken into
4: mm-hmm.
5: and we learn nothing about their justice system we 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 don't see any evidence of police police lines um there's there's obviously reporters and then there's the gringotts like staff. you know staff but there's no there's no prosecutorial system we don't hear anything about a judge <laughs> we don't hear anything about like Anything. You not know, a, there's no there's stage. no securities and exchange commission that's no. investigating the the the, um, the bank to understand whether or not the bank's um, systems were faulty. We're not having anything regarding um, you know, a corruption chart. We're not learning anything about an internal review that's being done to make sure there's no staff from Green that are in on this. I mean there's there's nothing and it's
0: um You know what it is? It's rich territory. For fan fiction. That's right. Oh, the most I feel boring
2: like bureaucratic <laughs> fan fiction you've ever read. <laughs>
0: right up Alex's alley. Oh. I think we know what you need to set your writing to. Mm. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Like, murder mysteries involving the justice system and police investigations in the wizarding world of Harry Potter? I mean, can you get any more...
5: Oh my gosh. Rich. Fascinating? That stuff. Could be. You could.
0: You all could. Those, all the procedural details. Mm. Let's not limit ourselves. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of Chapter 8. We thank you, dear listener, for following us all the way through to the end of this podcast. Next time... We will be looking at Chapter 9 of The Sorcerer's Stone, The Midnight Duel. We hope you will join us then. Uh, and until then, we bid you farewell. Bye, Goodbye. Bye everybody.